Hello, this is Ian Welke, author of End Times Richmond High and of Four Corners. You're listening to the HP Lovecast podcast. Hello, and welcome to episode 39 of the HP Lovecast podcast. My name is Michelle Brittany, editor of James Bond in Popular Culture and the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space. I write on all things pop culture with special emphasis on horror and spy genres. And I'm Nicholas Dyack, a pop culture scholar of Peplum Films, Industrial Music, Horror Studies, and the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland. Michelle and I also co-edited Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern, also from McFarland. For today's episode, we'll be discussing Eric C. Higgs's short story, Blood of the Kaputiki, included in the Valancourt Book of Horror Stories, Volume 3. But first, to set the stage, we'll be talking about tiki horror and Lovecraft and tiki. So first, a little bit about uh, tiki and the horror genre. Uh, both tiki and horror, they are super, super compatible together. Um, it's actually kind of a shame that, that they're not explored that much together. I can kind of see why. You kind of got to, you know, be cognizant of how you're depicting other cultures. But aside from that, um, you know, after uh, World War II, there was kind of a, a little micro cycle of uh, tiki horror films that came out. And there's been some texts here and there. Uh, some examples are the movie uh, From Hell It Came, which has this uh, tiki tree going around and killing people. It's a bad film. Uh, the Blood Island films. Uh, we saw that, uh, the Severin box set, like two years ago. Uh, Terror is a Man, Brides of Blood, Beast of Blood, Mad Doctor of Blood, and uh, those progressively get worse. But they're fun, and they actually have, uh, when we uh, kind of talked about those uh, way back in the way back, they have shades of a uh, Herbert West reanimator to them. There's the uh, comic book uh, series, uh, Tiki Surf Witches Want Blood, that we've uh, met the owner at WonderCon. Um, Horrors of Spider Island, which is about a whole bunch of uh, German girls that get stuck on an island with one spider. Um, And even movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, which doesn't seem tiki at first, but, you know, as tiki cultures kind of progressed, and we're in this new wave of tiki where there's new generation of artists making, you know, paintings and mugs and whatnot, uh, the titular creature from the Black Lagoon has kind of been canonized as as a tiki mascot of sorts. There's lots of artwork and mugs on him, and we see a lot of that stuff. Yeah, we do, particularly in artwork. I mean, we see it in the films, but we're seeing um, definite resurgence in art. Uh, We see mummies, for instance, shrunken heads, um, portrayed in paintings such as Shag. He does a lot of, um, well, he does quite a few um, pieces of art that includes mummies, uh, which makes me very happy. (laughs) Um, But we also see through our friend's company, House of Taboo, mm-hmm. we see a, a fair amount of mummies, and in fact, he's got a new piece that he'll be uh, uh, debuting, I'm not sure soon. when, but, but soon, uh, which involves Egyptian. So we definitely see how horror does have 
uh, can be reappropriated into into tiki. We even have uh, mondo and uh, geeky tikis, which I think is probably some of the earlier stuff uh, a few years ago where we were seeing definite crossovers, definitely more mainstream because you see that at like San Diego Comic-Con or, you know, WonderCon and some of the other places um, where you'd see this crossover. And then it's expanded. It's become more of a specialty item mm -hmm. uh, that I've seen. Um, but yeah. But yeah, definitely horror and tiki go together from mugs to artwork to film. Uh, it's, it's a great combo. It's fun, you know, from seeing, you know, uh, tiki mugs of Dracula on it to tiki mugs made out of Jaws. I mean, is Jaws a tiki movie? Maybe, maybe not. It's definitely adjacent, but a Jaws tiki mug, that's just chef's kiss right there. So now the next big question is Lovecraft tiki. Michelle, your thoughts on that? Um, I would say, to a degree, Lovecraft could be tiki. Um, I think it's more from a conceptual standpoint, though. Um, to me, Lovecraft, uh, while it is horror, there's also a, a there's this concept themes of escapism. I'd say exotic, uh, mysterious while also being, because of the unknown, like the cosmic horror, as being scary, being fearful of the unknown. And I think that we see that in uh, tiki horror. I think we have a lot of those elements. Essentially, I think they're superficial, um, definitely more at an abstract uh, level than, they, than as concrete as, you would, as I would necessarily feel that they are. What about you? See, overall, for, I would think, all of Lovecraft's repertoire, I think it's tiki-adjacent. We got stories like Dagon, Mountains of Madness, and Shadow Over Innsmouth, which have, you know, large uh, sections of uh, aquatic horror to it. And anytime you have aquatic horror, you can definitely extrapolate something tiki from it. But I, I actually full-out believe Call of Cthulhu is an overt tiki story. Um... It has many of the elements that make Tiki Tiki, I think. Uh, Inspector Legrasse's uh, Cthulhu idol that he gets from the, the swamps, that's basically one and the same as a Tiki statue. Uh, you know, the sunken city of Ryla out in the Pacific, there's some definite, um, I would say, Pacifica uh, Tiki uh, elements there. You know, the, the tribal drumming and whatnot, I could see that becoming very, you know, exotica. Um, I just, to me... Call of Cthulhu just hits these uh, kind of points that make it a, a tiki story. And I think I think other folks have kind of picked up on that. Because over the years, there have been other uh, authors and artists that have seen those kind of latent tiki possibilities in Lovecraft and built on them. Uh, for example, Lynn Carter with his Zothic cycle. Um, that's a, a flat-out a whole bunch of tiki short stories that he put together. He uh, he created an institute called the Sanborn Institute of Pacific Antiquities, which is basically the Miskatonic on the West Coast. Robert M. Price wrote Invaders from the Black Lagoon, which is it leverages uh, Carter's Zothic elements, and it basically posits that Creature from the Black Lagoon is based off of, like, deep spawns and other things. Um... And then you and I, on a prior podcast, and we'll put this in the show notes, when we did Swords Against Cthulhu, we read a, a short story called Modu by Mark Sims, 
which is flat out tiki. It's, you know, islanders that take up swords. They fight in an arena at, you know, Ryla and stuff like that. Uh, you know, it's tropical uh, Lovecraftian horror, and it was done very, very well, if I recall correctly. Um, there's also places like Horror and Clay, which makes Cthulhu tiki mugs. So, you know, there's a lot of folks that have looked at Lovecraft stuff and said, I see this. I can extrapolate something tiki from it. So, to me, it's not far-fetched. His entire bodywork, probably not tiki, but there's definitely elements in it, especially in Call of Cthulhu, that can be tiki-ified. So, with that in mind, let's talk about Blood of the Capu Tiki. Married for 10 years and having just spent $4,000 on a lounge chair, Kevin tells his wife, Melina, he wants a divorce. The news surprises her. She tells Kevin she will do anything to keep him, but he shuns her pleading. While he acknowledges she spent the marriage putting him through medical school and law school, Kevin sees his hot Hawaiian babe of a decade ago as having let herself go, to have become a suburban. She asks if there's someone else, but he responds that how could he find time with his high-pressure work life? He takes off, but not before telling Melina he can't stand her hog body and hog face. A short time later, Kevin arrives at a bungalow and unlocks the door with a key, a house key secreted away in his wallet. He's greeted by Alicia, a tall blonde who has replaced Melina as the most beautiful woman ever. As they make love, they are unaware that Melina is spying on them via a sacred bowl and liquid her grandmother, Kalapana, gave Melina on her wedding day. Hell has no fury like a woman's scorn. Alicia and Kevin settle in the back garden paradise. Exotic music is playing while Alicia prepares spicy coconut chicken on the barbecue and makes blood of the kapu tiki drinks for them. Tiki totems are scattered amongst the tropical foliage. Everything is idyllic. Or is it? <laughs> Melina calls to the god Kahiko to give her balance. Balance is bloody. The statues come to life, grab Alicia, bite her, and she becomes a statue before Kevin's eyes. Kevin is changed by the terror he witnessed. Now with the plot done. All right. Nick, what do you think of the story? I enjoyed it. Um, it reads like a Tales from the Crypt story. This probably could have been an EC comic story about 60 years ago. Um, it is pretty cliche. You know, the characters are completely one-dimensional. They don't really have any, you know, anything past the surface. Um, it's definitely a woman-scorned revenge story. We've seen a lot of those. Um, but it's it's the tiki dressing for the story that, that gives it its nice uh, spin. Because, you know, again, we talked about earlier, uh, tiki and horror go together. We don't see it that often, so it's kind of a, a rarity to see, hey, here's a tiki horror short story. And I'll be honest, uh, to me, to me, the story... Um, I gotta be careful how I say this. Is is goals not not me being Kevin, mind you, but goals to to have a nice house and a backyard of a little escape where we can go and read and relax and have a tiki drink. That that type of goals. The 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 plan to get there is a lot different than this guy's plan. That's for sure. Michelle, your thoughts about the story? 
Um, I thought it was okay. Honestly, uh, the points that you bring up are very much uh, the reasons why it was in the okay range. Uh, like you said, um, I it the characters were really kind of one-dimensional. It was really hard to feel for any of them. Maybe Melina, um, but Kevin was just a total douche. And <laughs> Alicia, you know, she's the, you know the trophy, the next trophy wife. Um, I really felt that it was, the story was reliant on worn out tropes uh, of one spouse sacrificing all for the other. So we've seen that a lot. Um, and of course, you know, that person gets left behind while the other one goes towards success. I mean, it really is kind of a slice of life. We see that a lot, even in, in everyday real life. I think what helps the story, though, is the twist. It's like you said, the, the tiki elements are interesting concepts to bring into the story. Um, and I think the twist at the end it helps the story. Um, that keeps it, you know, in the, oh, okay, that's interesting. Um, you know something's going to happen to Kevin. You just know it. Um, but I think that the author, uh, Eric uh, Higgs, makes a nice twist of it. Yeah, uh, Alicia being turned into a statue didn't see that coming on the you know the initial read you know because it it the the big critical scene is and it's actually kind of gruesome to imagine this big old tiki statue its mouth gaping open it's got these splintered teeth and it's gonna bite right in your neck I mean you could have just ended it right there and you know hey dead body they carted uh, uh, Kevin away but that didn't happen she actually thump, gets turned into a tiki statue and. You know, in a way, that's probably a, a worse uh, fate for, uh, you know, Kevin, because, you know, that's that was his, you know, his new bow. Uh, if she had actually died, that probably puts a little closure to the ending of it. But no, she's now a tiki idol. She's still technically there. She's a tangible thing. And now it's out of his grasp. And uh, no, good twist. And but I think the tiki elements is kind of what helps elevate the story because it brings in a lot of other kind of a uh, social and uh, relationship type stuff that a normal story like this wouldn't have. So so I think centerpiece of the story is definitely about relationships. Um yeah, and there and obviously there's uh it's a triangle. Um but there's also uh dynamics between uh the two relationships um that are centered on Kevin. <laughs> Uh, first, we have Melina, who we get from his observation that, you know, she was this Hawaiian hot babe. She's let herself go. Um, you know, she's all of 30, but he said that, you know, she's looks like she's 10 years older and a hard 40. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that's his estimation. Um, and then we also, from his and point that, of view... And that's what he really fixates on. You oh, know, yes. I mean... Uh, it's like he can't deny all the other stuff that Melina has done for him because, yeah, she has basically put him through school, but, you know, he, he can't discredit all that stuff. The thing he has to focus on is you are definitely not the hot person I knew 10 years ago, and that just seems to give him the foundation to do what he needs to do, and it's extremely uh, superficial. Yes, uh, definitely. He... Uh, Higgs puts in there a lot of identifiers of just how superficial and how materialistic uh, Kevin is. Through the first scene, 
we really don't get much about Melina, but boy, do we hear about Kevin. Kevin having smoke, having the very expensive lighter, uh, smoking the expensive cigar. His ass is the one that's sitting on the $4,000 lounge chair that they just bought, and he's in a tailored suit. Um, you know, she's probably in jeans, sneakers, a t-shirt or whatever. And, you know, he's, he's dressed for success. You know, she's the one that's had to, you know, tell, do telemarketing jobs, um, be a waitress and take all the shit jobs for the last 10 years to support this dumbass. <laughs> now, the funny thing about the relationships is, to me, this is a very, uh, Christoph Kieslowski-esque story where characters also double for other characters. What Alicia is now is what Melina was 10 years ago. Um, Melina 10 years ago was this hot babe. She's no longer the hot babe. Alicia is now the new Melina, which also implies that in 10 years, Kevin's going to be looking for an Alicia placement. And he's already kind of setting the seeds for that. Early in the story, when he's in Alicia's arms, you know, she asks him, did you tell her that we're going to get married? And he's like, yeah, sure I did. He didn't say that. You know, he's, you know, he spit all this lying on Melina. He's already starting to lie for this, apparently, the god, his new goddess in his life. He's already starting to lie to her. The other kind of thing is, is a little bit later in the story, as a uh, Kevin is introspectively, and that's given him too much credit, you know, kind of waxing over how awesome he is and how important it is that Alicia is his new Melina. He talks about, you know, life in the office, and there's a one of his office workers, his name uh, Sam Kovacs, and he talks about, like, uh, Sam has gotten now this, this trophy wife who has, you know, fake boobs, and he's the laughing stock. He's just got this young person, and Sam's older, and... but. That's Kevin's fate in 10 years. He just doesn't realize that. Probably 20 years. Mm -hmm. But yeah. that's his ultimate fate. It's yeah. staring there in the face. He can keep hopping from woman to woman to woman, but you know, his ultimate fate is right there and he doesn't he doesn't have, you know, the insight to see where he's going. That he is, as you said, he's a douche. <laughs> yes, and he he also seems to be attracted to strong women because Melina obviously is a resourceful woman she was 20 she has the wherewithal you know even though it's misplaced the fact is is that she's not afraid to work she's obviously got uh she's a powerful woman uh alicia we find out is the owner of the bungalow and initially when you know he, uh kevin goes sneaking off to the bungalow I honestly was thinking, oh, yep, this is where some of the money's gone. Is he's he's bought his next uh, trophy wife her own bungalow or their next, you know, kind of hideaway home. But it 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 isn't. She's bought it, so she has power intellect. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what does that also say about Kevin? Kevin is is also even though he's gone through school, um, you know, he's gotten a medical degree and. Uh, a law degree which takes intelligence at the end of the day you know is he really all that smart he's he's probably book smart but he's definitely not street smart and he's definitely not emotionally smart you know it's funny um oh that's a good point about the emotionally smart because uh you know at one point he talks about how beautiful alicia is and he's comparing her to the porn 
women that he's seen that he's been wanking off to at the office. So, you know, and that sounds like a teenage thing to do. Yeah, there's this entire sentence in there where he's like, yeah, she's hotter than the ladies I see on the internet. And that's seriously what, like, a kid in the 90s would say when they first get on dial-up and look up, you know, a hot chick and typing the word boobs into Yahoo search. Um, you know, it's funny. I'm just, I'm just, right now I'm just reminded of the emotionally smart. There's an F. Paul Wilson short story that... Uh, I read a like last year. It was on. Um, it was re-released in a book called. Um, I don't know. Uh, Eugene Johnson put it together. I can't remember. It's called Tales from the Lost. I think it's one of those things from the Well book. Regardless, it's this eighty story. It has a lawyer in it who cannot feel empathy at all. And what happens is he eventually gets cursed to feel empathy. And uh, initially, he uses it for his gain to like you know seek the empathy in other people and. You know, he, he wants to, like, put him in jail through, you know... He, 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 like, does malpractice suits or something. He's basically this character. Uh, eventually, you know, he gets his comeuppance. He's, like, in a sane asylum, and he actually feels the all the ghosts around him that had died there. And, of course, he's like, I can't take all this. But, yeah, this lawyer character has zero empathy, and his curse is to feel empathy. And this Kevin character... I don't know if he doesn't have empathy. He's def if if it is there, he is definitely pushing it down as much as he can to focus on. Yeah, my old wife is not hot. My new wife is. I'm gonna take her to see the governor, and I'm gonna be super successful. I think uh, he's so focused on ambition and being successful, <laughs> and we do get a hint that when he met Melina in Honolulu, mm-hmm. he had absolutely nothing. So he has That's a drive. He has a drive to want to succeed and to have things that he didn't have when he was growing up. There's nothing wrong with that. And I know we'll talk about, you know, well, it's kind of like That's a good segue to talk about well, prosperity. Prosperity. Well, let's go ahead and talk yeah. about it. You know, prosperity and and, and the American dream. I, I agree if you're interpret. I, I, I have the same feeling that when the the Kevin character 10 years ago is probably a beach bum. He has, he's not even in college yet. And he only, you know, I think you're hundred percent right. That it sounds like both Melina and Kevin are both starting at square one. And, you know, I can see their plan is, well, we're a team now. We're going to work together. I'm going to put you through school. Then you're going to take care of me afterwards. And people have that relationship. And Mm-hmm. Honest people make it work because how in this day and age, how do you achieve that American dream? You have to work together. You have to have a trusting partner and all that stuff. Because you know we've both been you know fed that American dream line that if you work super hard and go to school and bring yourself up by your bootstraps, you're gonna have your own house and be successful and all that stuff. And what we're finding today is it's kind of a crock you know that was the american dream you know post-world war ii with with i'm just gonna say it's the boomer generation they had the structures in place of a cheaper accessible school gi bills and you know the the different lifestyle back then was a lot different um that's well, and not that, what and that and that was that was what that was the dream that was being sold back in the 50s because mm-hmm. they were tr- they they had this urban sprawl the 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 suburbia uh growth and you know it was an opportunity to sell something to people uh it was a commodification of this dream um that we see um in the 1950s and we see kevin uh, as kind of representative of that he he he's definitely 
he's the perceived success story of this American dream. The idea, because let's just get, we'll give him a little bit of credit. It's Ten years in both law school and doctor school, you have to have a little something to do that. You got to be at least a little smart, a little bit of cunning, very studious and whatnot. But the fact of the matter is, he couldn't have done it without Molina. You know, this is not. He did not do this on his own. He thinks he did this on his own. He probably tells people he runs into at the office, I did this on his own. You know, it's that, and that's a mentality that we see nowadays of people that, 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 that say, yeah, I, I, I'm a self-made man. Well, no, you're not. You know, you were born into to privilege. You got handed an inheritance or a trust fund or whatever. The, the actual ability to do rags and riches is extremely uh, rare. And, but... You know, Kevin's path seems to reaffirm that that the the dream. While on the other hand, Melina's path affirms more of the reality. You know, she's a Polynesian person. She's working. She's working the crap jobs, telemarketing, janitor work, waitressing, whatever. And that's what we see. You know, the folks that come to the states, uh, you know, from down south or overseas or whatever, they want that American dream. And you know, they they start at the bottom and you know, and stay there. We all kind of wind up staying there. That. You can work as hard as you can, but you're always working for someone else who will, you know, exploit you or whatever. In this case, it's Kevin doing that. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to obtain that, you know, that the thing that we were sold on. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps, go to school, and you will be successful. Yes, Melina is definitely the breadwinner through the first 10 years. And even though, you know, Kevin acknowledges, well, you know, lawyer up, uh, you'll get you know, up to the point of his earnings. Well, he made, what, $280,000 the first year. And, you know, the debt of going to doctor school or medical school, going to uh, law school is going to be quite a, quite a hefty chunk. So, you know, even though he's, he's starting to see success, um, you know, there's a lot of debt behind the scenes. And I it's our role to kind of like look at things and infer things. And, you know, as you were talking, Nick, I was thinking about whether it's incidental or uh, Higgs was just this great at, at subtext telling about how, you know, the role reversal, the failure of the American dream, and also the concept of the American dream as a way, as a subterfuge for keeping people focused on one thing while a lot of other things are happening elsewhere. But I also thought about her as the wife. They always say the wife is the last to know. And I don't think she didn't know. She asks, but I think... Denial. I think there's a bit of denial here because of... She's not getting sex from him because he's, you know, doing his deposits while he's at work. Oh, that was a devil in Tundra. <laughs> But, you know, they're not having sex, and they just spend a ton of money on a, on a chair that she thinks is an indicator that they're happy when they're really not. And, I mean, he's like, this really shouldn't come as a surprise. And you know what? It really shouldn't, because the signs were there. But anyway, I, I digress. Well, you know, there's probably, there's probably a bit of gaslighting going on Kevin's end, but... You know, uh, if there's something bad going on, you sometimes do want to put your head in the sand. Um, but that's really no one's fault there. You know, this is, this is you know, 
this uh, this relationship triangle is what a lot of people are actually living out there nowadays. You know, there's some serious, you know, uh, narcissism going on right here. Uh, you know, gaslighting, abuse, and whatnot. And again, yeah, it's a it's a it's a short schlocky, pulpy, tales from the crippy type story, but it doesn't mean that it's not without merit or commentary, especially when you pick out these little little nuggets to come out. Like like the internet scene, you know, we laugh at it because it's kind of an immature thing, but it is like, you know, <laughs> you know, he's it tells more about the Kevin character. He's definitely getting his jollies off watching stuff online instead of with his wife that supported him from 10 years until he can get this Alicia girl. There's also the scene where Melina is with her magic bowl that she, you know, uses to make the tiki's come alive, and she scries on uh, Kevin and Alicia in their throes of passion. And I couldn't help but think, you know, that was a gift from her grandma. It's probably a break-in-case-of-emergency type gift. You know, if life has been really hard for them for the past 10 years working these terrible jobs, that they've probably been at, like, moments of, like, getting evicted or they couldn't put food on the table because, again, going through doctor school and law school, you know, having one person, you know, so be the breadwinner for the entire household, a nice role reversal, it's the wife doing all this, you know, there's probably instances of she could have used that bowl during that 10 years to do something else, you know, because uh, we know it has scrying capabilities. It could probably have told her lotto figures for all we know, but she didn't, you know, she still stuck to that dream of my hard work is going to pay off for us, not for me. You know, Melina's not the selfish one here. She's working as a team. She probably could have dipped into that bowl to make their lives easier, but, you know, she's still stuck to that, you know, my hard work, is going to be the benefit for both of us, and I, I think that says a lot about her character here. I mean, they all they all have their their quirks and stuff. Although unanimously, Kevin is, as you put it, is a douche. I'm sorry, Kevin, <laughs> but it's true. So there's other, you know, since this is a tiki story, and it's not a Lovecraft story, although we're talking about HP Lovecast podcasts, you know. Uh, identification of cultures and how they're depicted and stuff is kind of a is an issue in both Lovecraft and in Tiki uh, especially right now because Tiki is first and foremost pretty much a, a colonialist reappropriation of a lot of stuff you know we can go through the books and say Trader Vic did this Don Beach did that returning sailors from World War II did this built on this type of literature at the end of the day, you know, Tiki's fun. It's a nice hodgepodge, barring for a lot of cultures. But, you know, depending on your interaction with Tiki, it, it can, you know, it can come off as fun. But there are folks that can also be a little disrespectful of it. And when I say disrespectful of it, I don't mean disrespectful of Tiki. I mean disrespectful of the cultures that Tiki borrows from. And I think it's it's nice, you know, this is a nice story to read, to put the mirror, because I'm... I'm really into tiki stuff here, so it's nice to have the mirror held up and, you know, reevaluate, am I engaging in things appropriately and whatnot. And this story, it has a couple instances of, is this tiki stuff, you know, is, is, a, is it appropriate going on? Um, for example, Melina represents, you know, she's a Polynesian person. Um, she, she has, you know, this magic bowl that's been passed through her family, so it definitely has a 
a heritage aspect to it, a cultural aspect to it. But on the other hand, Alicia, <laughs> which is the lifestyle I want to live, has the, <laughs> I'm sorry, at least I'm honest about it, you know, has the backyard with the grill and the tiki statues and whatnot, and it's a different perspective on things. You know, if, if Alicia's statues are actually modeled off of tiki, uh, not tiki, but actually modeled off of, like, real Polynesian deities and practices and stuff, that could be very disrespectful. Um, you know, Melina's going to take something else out of it that Alicia's not. To her, that's just good luck. Melina's like, what the heck? Why, why are you fetishizing my, you know, you know, deities and whatnot? I think of the magic bowl, you know, for Melina, again, heritage object and whatnot. You hand that to Alicia. Alicia's going to look at it and say, great, this is a scorpion bowl. I can't wait to put a drink inside of it. So there's a little bit of that, you know, what's kind of going on here over, you know, per perspectives of these uh, cultural artifacts and how they've been either interpreted, borrowed, reused, uh, built upon, um... It's just, it's an interesting thing. And I think it's a lot of folks that, you know, like me, that are into tiki stuff, need to constantly entertain. Are you engaging in this properly? And it's a question we all ask ourselves of uh, stuff nowadays. Yeah, I think that is a, a good question to ask, particularly since, you know, we think about when we had uh, the first kind of wave of, the escapist and the uh, exotic, exotic kind of interaction with Polynesian and other South uh, Pacific cultures. The fact that, you know, what they represented then, what, how they've been retrofitted into society today, and where we didn't have the necessary engagement because we weren't thinking in a more sensitive in a sensitive way about other cultures you know there's this portrayal that it was fun it was quaint it was it was a it was a gauge of success to be able to have you know your garden in the back with you know tiki torches tiki totems um What's you that? know the banana trees <laughs> and all the, the exotic tiki drinks with their little umbrellas and things like that. And that this was, this was your, this was the temperature check of your success. Well, that, that builds upon what, what is it, you know, post-World War II, you're living in the suburbs. What, what was your measure of success to show the world that you were successful? You had that immaculate lawn. Well, how do you want to have someone of immaculate lawn? Well, check out my tiki backyard. Because if you think about it, that's a, that's the ultimate conquest, you know. Uh, it's a very colonial thing here that I was mm -hmm. able to take another bits of other culture, put it into a, an area that it shouldn't be in. Here's my backyard in the city. I have now turned it into a tropical paradise. It is basically... You've showed mastery and commanding of all the elements out there, be it, you know, geographical or cultural. Um, and th th there's that, you know, pervasive attitude, I think, in tiki stuff. You know, I see it online. I go online. I see people trying to gatekeep tiki, saying it's this and that. I I've always been more of the more liberal mindset. I like the newer wave of stuff where people are doing their own things with tiki that is disengaged from... Uh, trying to anchor itself into, you know, another person's culture, but doing their own art, their own uh, style. Uh, I, I think that's where you see the more fun things occur anyway. 
Yeah, you know, and it it's being sensitive to past misappropriation of of a culture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even using tiki is is a misappropriation mm-hmm. of the culture. And although we're using it, it's kind of for for ease, but it isn't without you know being problematic even for us to you know to call it tiki when that's it's a more tropical. Mm-hmm representation um of other cultures but yeah it 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 is a challenge and it is you know hopefully we are learning to be more sensitive and you know there are ways to be engaged without misappropriating it you could definitely have your cake and eat it too you definitely can and i think you can have that with lovecraft stuff you know, we always talk about with Lovecraft, you know, there's the inherent racism and sexism and stuff like that. And that's why we focus on the derivative, story, the derivative stories, because they're able to take that stuff, filter it off, and do something new with it. And I think you can do that with Tiki, you could do that with Lovecraft. And so that kind of brings us to kind of the last bit of our podcast is Blood of the Capu Tiki. It's not a Lovecraft story. We're kind of setting the foundation to talk about Lovecraft and Tiki on subsequent podcasts. But there is some stuff here that we can definitely talk in tandem with Lovecraft. You know, this isn't a cosmic horror story. It, it, if you ask the Nick Mamatos question, is this awe-inspiring? It's not. But there, there is some stuff here that I, I think are kind of, you know, uh, of interest. For example, when Kevin finally goes insane, how many Lovecraft characters go insane? And how do they usually do it? First, they faint. You gotta have the Lovecraft faint. I think that needs to be not only not only do you have to ask, is there the awe element? Is there the fainting element? Right. Um, but you know, after then afterwards, like, oh, I can't remember anything. It was so horrific, and I'm just a gibbering mess. Well, you know, Kevin at the very end, he goes insane. And, you know, the police officers that arrive on scene that are investigating the crime scene, you know, they describe his insanity very well. Like, there's the look in his eyes, and I've seen this before. It's actually a really nice, I don't know if nice is the right word, but I'm going to say at least artistically written depiction of someone trying to make sense. I mean, he just saw his new bow get bitten by a giant tiki monster and turn into a tiki statue of herself. How do you comprehend that? How do you comprehend seeing Cthulhu come out of the waves? You really can't. So your world has now just crashed. You you, you are now a mess trying to comprehend all that. And I think that depiction here is way better than a lot of the instances that we see in Lovecraft's writing. Uh, Even though we get a a fairly good image, we get fairly good imagery of Kevin and what happens to Alicia, although I don't think it's a thump. (laughs) Uh, that happens to her as much as maybe kind of a metamorphosis is kind of what I envision um, as her skin sheds off her bones and she becomes, you know. Well, you took this way more gruesome. I didn't even think about it. I just kind of accepted (laughs) it as she got bit and next scene she's a statue. I didn't even think about closing my eyes and think about, well, how did she get from A to B? Well, her skin slid off and her bone... Oh, wow, Michelle, you are crazy. <laughs> and she, she turned out to be three foot tall. And her, her body just went... Oh, man. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> my, my, my imagination totally went there. So, um, actually, what, what I thought about when the detective is looking at what has now become the Alicia statue... 
where she doesn't look like the other statues because her mouth is open in surprise, her eyes are wide open, mm -hmm. terrified, and there's indications that there's these long, wavy hair. Um, you know, that would be kind of scary to see a, a statue not portrayed like all the others. Um, but he also talks about, and it is a kind of a good line, and that's the fact that, you know, he's obviously not into this retro, tropical... The police officer, that the, is. The, the, yeah, the detective guy who, who says, oh, I've actually seen these at Home Depot. Um, <laughs> I'm like, and is that not just the ultimate in the commodification of a culture, is to go down to the local... Home Depot and see the statue. Well, how how awful is that? You know, on a on a lot of different levels. Well, I I just thought, wow. I think I think it's awful for but for different reasons because tiki's is built on other cultures. So mm -hmm. when you commodify tiki, uh, I I think it's more awful to all the gatekeepers that hold tiki uh, above. Like it's above commodification. How how dare you buy these geeky tiki's modeled after Dracula and Bart Simpson characters? Those aren't tiki at all. And of course, the irony is, back in the fifties and sixties, tiki was commodified. You know, you could buy for one, two dollars flimsily made mugs and decor and tiki torches and stuff. It's no different than today. It's just that people nowadays will say, oh, that stuff back then is worth lots of money and it was, that's the real deal. No, it's the same commodified stuff. Which it's is, just vintage. It's just, it's just vintage commodified stuff because people didn't think it was going to be worth something back then. Now, now in 20 years, all the, you know, the crappy stuff now is going to be sawed out in 30 years. Man, I really wish I did have a Bart Simpson's tiki mug. All right. So, concluding points. Uh, Blood of Capu Tiki. Fun. Tales from the Crippy-ish story that I think with the additional tiki elements added to it and a lot of the relationship dynamics, th there's some stuff to unpack here. I think it's a fun story. Um, is it Lovecraftian? No. Is it Lovecraftian compatible? Yes. Do we understand a little bit more about Lovecraft and tiki and horror by diving into it? I think we do. And with that, that concludes our discussion of Blood of the Kapu Tiki by Eric C. Higgs. We want to thank Ian Welke for providing the opening bumper to, for this episode. He is the author of End Times at Ridgemont High and Four Corners. We had the pleasure of interviewing Ian on our Scholars from the Edge of Time podcast, and a link to that program is in the show notes. We wish Ian much continued success. For upcoming events, uh, in episode 10 of HP Lovecast Presents Fragments, we'll be continuing our exploration of horror and tiki with a discussion of the 1959 film Count Tiki, The Immortal Monster. That episode will post Sunday, May 23rd. From Scholars from the Edge of Time, we'll have a new episode streaming Thursday, May 27th at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Our guest will be Amanda Desiree, author of the recently released Smithy, which is her debut novel. If you don't catch us live, no problem. The episode will be available afterwards for download or streaming. And on our second episode of HP Lovecast Presents Transmissions, we'll spotlight two special guests as they discuss a new or upcoming release of theirs, as well as providing a brief reading. This episode will post Monday, May 31st. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com, and of course, you can also email us at hplovecast at gmail.com. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by purchasing our books. We each have Amazon author pages with links to all the books we have either edited or contributed to with individual essay chapters. Or if you feel like donating a dollar or two, we have a coffee account. A link is provided in the show notes. As always, thank you for listening.